Hi, welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Uh, Wade and I are in our studio trying to make Christianity great again through our podcast. That's what we're trying to do. And <laughs> we haven't been very successful. Apparently, Christianity is always going to be full of sinners. Anyway, we are uh, here in another one of our winging it sessions of the life of Martin Luther, and we did the 95 Theses uh, last time, and really we're actually at a chronological order here. We're, we're going to try to tackle the disputation against scholastic theology, and sometimes we think, uh, I always kind of thought this was later, even though it's the same year, this is September 1517, so um, early September, so almost two months before the posting of the 95 Theses. And I suppose, Wade, the reason I really think that is, oh, this is more, 95 Theses was really uh, kind of, uh, he didn't know what he was talking about, and he hadn't thought these things through. We kind of get that impression. But then he starts getting into these major disputations against scholastic theology and then the, the Heidelberg um, the following year. And that's when he really is starting to develop those things. But when you actually start looking at the dates and actually start to think about all this stuff, he very early on is struggling with the will, struggling with uh, gospel and law and grace and sin, and has really gotten to the heart of the matter very quickly. Um, so we're going to tackle the disputation against scholastic theology today and maybe just a little bit of a background on that. These were written by Martin Luther for a student, to then debate, correct? Another student is to debate. For students. For students yeah. to debate. So he writes them, and then um, there is one particular student, right, who is the one who's going to defend them against the debates. How, how would that work? How Maybe paint that scene, um, uh, Wade, for us, how that would work. Uh, it would be in, in a room. Um, there would have been other faculty invited, correct? How would that yeah, work out? It depends um, on what the the occasion for the disputation is. So, I mean, disputation could be part of um, <clears throat> regular academic class life, but there could also be an occasion for it. Someone, <coughs> excuse me, someone's graduating, it's a festival. Um, so it, it could depend on the setting. This is something Luther's writing for his students, probably plural, um, to, de to debate, um, to work through. We're, I don't know that with this, we're sp specifically privy to a um, specific occasion um, for it, but it's meant for his students to be discussing, disputing. Um, and it's connected to, at this time, um, the curriculum reform that's going to be undertaken um, that Luther and Melanchthon will push. Melanchthon, when he comes to Wittenberg, um, is going to talk about, you know, the, the importance of kind of a Christian humanism or... Um, the curriculum of the university kind of set out a plan. Luther obviously is moving towards a recognition of a need for a more biblically defined curriculum. So I think here probably students plural, if we think if we think of it, is that maybe more helpful. This is intended for his students to be working through. Although there are other occasions where it will be um, to mark a festival or someone's graduation, where there will be specific students in mind to be debating something to a set audience. But this is definitely you can tell themes that are going to come up regularly in Luther's classrooms at this time. And I think you hit on a, a good point there. We, we're kind of intentionally um, out of chronological order here because 95 Theses is what we wanted to get to as, okay, this is now the Reformation as we think of it beginning to pop off. Um, there's no capital R Reformation in anyone's mind at this point. Um, but, uh, but this is to show 
that even a month before that now, and uh, Chuck Courtright, who had this book before me, um, I have my own copy, but I inherited his that's marked up, and so I use that, and I've marked in it up red, myself. In red ink, right? Yep, yeah. <laughs> and uh, has it as September 4th, 1517, so a month, month and a half uh, before the 95 Theses. Um, I think it's helpful for us to step back now that we said the 95 Theses weren't all that Lutheran in the sense of what Lutheranism becomes, um, to see, though, that already in this disputation against scholastic theology, Luther's ideas are much more developed than we maybe would have expected them to be. And his ideas specifically, as he's putting them out there for his students, for them to be debating and discussing, um, contrasted with the 95 Theses, which were meant for a wider academic audience, were much more public. And so I think this is helpful to remind us as well. Luther is somewhat cautious, I mean, as incautious as he, as he could be, though, um, was somewhat cautious in the 95 Theses. Here we see he's actively working through some big reformational themes, ideas, concepts, um, biblical passages in this disputation against scholastic theology. So I think it's helpful for us to leave the chronology a little bit um, out of order here to show just because we said with the 95 Theses they weren't exactly where you might have expected Luther to be entirely up there, doesn't mean he's not further along than we realize in the classroom. Yeah, and if you want to add then the Heidelberg there, one is for specific students. So Franz Gunther, I think, was the one who was, it was written for. He's going to take the lead for his students to deal with this. Oh, for this one here? This yeah. Class. Okay, and, so it is for but, a specific occasion. I but I don't know. We if we, I don't think we, I think you're right. We don't know the occasion. It wasn't like, we don't know if this guy was getting a doctorate or something like that. So, but for the inner faculty, University of Wittenberg, small. 95 Theses for a more public debate, although an academic debate. And then Heidelberg is for his Augustinian brethren. And so all three of those are going to be flavored in a in different way. And I think you're, you're good to point out, well, well, you and I speak to our students differently than what we're going to write if it's something's going to be published, right? We're going to pull some punches a little bit. We're going to, we're going to throw some stuff out there to our, our maybe our senior classes that are with juniors and seniors and, and debate these things and say, you know, I'm not quite sure, maybe. I, not that that's exactly what Luther was thinking, but it's a different setting. And then to add to that, I think you're, you're, that was a good insight to say, all right, it's not just, okay, he's concerned about theology very in particular, the nuts and bolts of it. He's also concerned about his students thinking things through. He's being a teacher here. But he also has underneath as uh, the dean of the theology department, right? I, can we use it that way? I don't know what his technical name is off the top of my head. But he's thinking about, as you said, curriculum development. I mean, this is, this is in the academic world. We don't do this anymore. We go a different direction than the way we write courses, teach courses, offer courses, what we're going to offer, what the curriculum is going to be. And so there's a lot going on here when you, when you, when you think about it. And so uh, maybe we can get into a little bit of, of the actual theses, or maybe, we, maybe there's some theological things you want to talk about beforehand. There's 97 of them. Um, he's going to mention Augustine. He's already going to be pretty much railing on Aristotle. Um, we'll take that with a grain of salt that he does like Aristotle. He's just saying when you, 
when you start doing theology and shoehorning it into Aristotelian terms and categories, that's when you get into a problem. So in a lot of ways, he's quite mature and cranky <laughs> with, with Aristotle and already with um, some of the, um, the church, the, the more recent church fathers, and he mentions them by, by name. So maybe uh, I, we've talked about this before. Well, just maybe one more thing with the theses. Um, the nature of a disputation, now, and Mike, that was very helpful. Um, a, I'm glad you could correct me that it, this is for a specific student, but um, classroom theses or university theses versus public with the 95 theses versus for the Augustinian order with the Heidelberg, the context is important. But one thing that's important to understand about theses and disputations anywhere is they're meant to be debated, and so sometimes they're very blunt or maybe even at times bombastic because the nature is to be debated. And so um, that's why sometimes when you're studying Luther's theses or, or disputation theses of other theologians from this time, they're short, very direct statements. And sometimes you might go, man, I wish they would unpack that more. Well, the intention was for it to be unpacked. Um, so Luther here is making these statements, our positions he holds, um, but they are made very shortly, curtly, and directly, precisely so that they can be debated and unpacked from there. So that's why this is going to be, um, studying them can be helpful in a way that maybe uh, studying a treatise by him um, will be helpful in different ways. Mm -hmm. There's just a different nature to what's intended. Yeah, maybe an example is Thesis 1, and I, and I will uh, mispronounce Augustine to make you happy. Uh, to say that Augustine exaggerates in speaking against heretics is to say that Augustine tells lies almost everywhere. This is contrary to common knowledge. And it's, you know, he's just putting it out there in a very, as you said, bombastic way. And um, later on, when it's going to be more controversial things, you could see, okay, what do you mean by that, Luther? What do you mean by that? Well, that's the whole point, right, that they would debate those things. So I don't know if it's helpful right now to talk about nominalism and realism. Uh, we've kind of been through that a little bit, but Wade, I don't know if you have that off the top of your head just to kind of, just to give us a little bit of historical background on what, why, how, why do the scholastics think and speak the way they do, and why is Luther saying no, no, no? Yeah, I think... Um those who want to get into more detail with nominalism and, and realism, um, we did have a session on that earlier um, that nominalist may have been in the title even. Um, maybe in the show notes we can put the session number for that to go back to. But um, in short, uh, a realist emphasized universals, that there's realities that then are manifested in right, the things we see. So um, it uh, maybe a little bit more platonic. Um, nominalism is uh, we give names to things as we it's more empirical as we observe them we give names to things so nominal the root there is kind of like a name um, but scholasticism um, you could be a scholastic and be influenced by nominalism or realism scholasticism the root there is this is the the theology the the theological method of the schools and this was heavily aristotelian in method meaning it, it um, operated through syllogisms. Um, you know, humans have hair, Wade has hair, therefore Wade is a human. Now, that's not a very good syllogism, and you could probably poke holes in that because I have less and less hair um, every day, it seems. But um, it's a method in the schools, and perhaps best exemplified um, by Thomas Aquinas, and who is still 
a preeminent teacher in the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, a lot of Roman Catholic teachings, especially moral teachings, are very much rooted uh, in Thomas theology, uh, his idea of natural law. Um, so scholasticism was the method of doing theology of the schools. And here in different theses, at some points, Luther's going to take issue with what he considers to be scholastic errors, so teachings they had arrived at by their method. And sometimes he's going to take issue with scholastic method, which is how they arrived at the teachings that they um, arrived at. But an underlying assumption of scholasticism that does go back to Aquinas is that at its core, God's teachings are reasonable. So this is faith-seeking understanding. And so using reason, we can um, better understand God's teachings or sometimes arrive at them. And one thing we know about Luther is, especially early in the Reformation, he is going to, and this is influenced by his nominalism, um, he is going to take issue with the role that reason had played in theology um, and with the fact that um, that God is limited by reason um, or that our reason is capable of as much of what the scholastics thought it was capable of. Um, you know, Luther says some bombastic things like reason is a whore, um, but at other times he'll say reason is the gift of God, um, and it can be a handmaid, a servant of theology, but reason ought not be put over Scripture. And you might remember even at Worms, right, what does he supposedly say at Worms, unless I'm proved wrong by Scripture or sound reason. So it's not that he's throwing out reason, but how reason was used um, according to the theological method of the schools, which we know as scholasticism today. The famous example of scholasticism would be a debate about how many angels can dance on the head of a needle. Now, some people would say, well, that's a pointless debate. Well, actually, they were trying to get at something very interesting, which is the corporal nature, nature of, of uh, angels. Do they take up space if they have bodies? Um, and this could be applied to all sorts of things. You could talk about, you know, Christ walks through a door after his resurrection. He has a body, but is he taking up space when he does so? Um, but he's definitely taking aim or issue with um, the way theology had been done in the schools and therefore the conclusions that it arrived at. And what he wants is a biblically defined theology. And so in here, when he attacks Aristotle, what he's attacking is Aristotle being a guide in theology or even a guide for truly good Christian works. Yeah, and then so it's not just about Aristotle's reason, but also his ethics a little bit. Of course, those can't be pulled uh, separate uh, that easily, but we'll get to maybe ethics a little bit. And so in there, in there, what he's getting at too is, so for Aristotle, virtue ethics is very important. You become a good person by practicing virtue, by building a good character. Well, um, we could say, according to civic righteousness, which is a term that Luther will use elsewhere, Aristotle's right on. Where Luther's going to take issue is that one can become a good Christian mm -hmm. or can do good Christian works, divine righteousness, by virtue ethics, which he will reject. Yeah, so in, in his example is, you know, the, uh, the good fruit don't make a good tree. Right, so you are righteous because God made you righteous, declared you righteous, and then you do good fruit and um, good deeds. And you know, it, Aristotelian logic is beautiful, brilliant, wonderful, and I would also say it's attractive. So the idea that Aristotle, you can pull out a little bit. Well, how do I become a patient person? Well, I practice being patient, and I do patience, and then I'm a patient person. I mean, that is great advice. It's fantastic advice. 
But before God, it's not only bad advice, it's the exact opposite of what it is. God says, I make you, and then I prepare good deeds in advance for you to do. And you can already see just kind of hints of the theology of the cross coming. Um, what you call good is actually evil, and what you call evil actually is good. And you can, Not only do you see that highlights with, um, or a hint of that, I should say, <clears throat> when he discusses um, Aristotle's ethics here in the disputation against scholastic theology, but just the naming, you know what I mean? Like almost their nominalism, what it, what it truly is in reality, and then when he names it, you know, I, it, you can see where he... Where he he is a he is a son of his times, and yet he's trying to break out of that. And if we could probably put it into one sentence, is this that, and this is why I think he's attracted, at least in the beginning, at least in some ways, to to the nominalist, especially uh, Occam and Beale, is that there are certain things we cannot know; they must be revealed from God, right? So I cannot know everything by just my use of logic. There must be some things that are revealed. And then so for me when and not I, everything that God reveals will be reasonable in the eyes of fallen human reason. Right. And and we should stop and say it's not like it's not like God is irrational. It's a it's an us problem. We're irrational under the guise of reason because we're so sinful. I mean I mean that's probably a decent way to start. So, you know, uh, Occam and Beale are going to talk about that revelation over against, and, and, and this is within scholasticism, over against the, um, the thought that mankind with reason has the ability to know um, the hidden things of God, right? And yet uh, Beale and Occam are, are uh, going to be people that still believe in some sort of work righteousness, they believe in uh, a completely free will, and so it's not like we can pinpoint Luther. This is, this is something that frustrates me. Is like, well, is Luther a nominalist or a realist? Well, he he's a biblical theologian. It's it's hard to pinpoint him, and I don't know that we should be pinpointing anybody, right? It it, it it's just a, it's it's that's too easy to label people like that. And so it's not like he is completely in the nominalist camp. I. That is, he just is going to follow Occam and Beale or whoever. I mean, he, he, he's really saying, I take reason up to Scripture, and when I have something that is revealed from Scripture, I'm going with Scripture rather than my reason because of my fallen reason. I, I think that's a fair way to simplify it. Sure, and I think, um, and, and not to derail that, but I think maybe most helpful will be if we can hit on what are some of the key areas in which he's going to take issue with what scholastic theology had taught, no matter what camp someone came from. Um, and so what I think is particularly helpful for this for our listeners is going to be where he sees his tension points with scholastic theology or with Aristotelian philosophy or with um, human religion in general. And so maybe if I can just throw out a few of those, Mike, and then you can react as Absolutely. you see fit. But I think um, really, and this is something I try to bring out in my book, An Uncompromising Gospel, is I think it's instructive that where um, Luther is going to begin in here is um, going to be where the Book of Concord, the formula of Concord especially, but a lot of the confessions will begin. It's where Paul begins in Romans, and I would argue that it's where Moses begins in Genesis. Um, and that is uh, Luther's main contentions is, are going to be that we have had entirely too light a view of original sin, 
entirely too high a view of free will and entirely too simplistic a view of grace and entirely too high a view of um, human works or, or um, human righteousness. And so if you look at the first few theses, and this should be available online. I believe there's a PDF on there we'll have to see. Um, otherwise, I see, Mike, you're in Luther's works for it, and I'm in the uh, um, Martin Luther's Basic Theological Writings uh, by Lull and Russell. Um, but he's going to start right out of the gates with Augustus, Augustine and Pelagius um, with original sin and with the good tree, bad tree, bad tree idea. Um, but then also with free will. And uh, and I think the fact that he begins with original sin and free will is going to be critical for all his subsequent theology, which obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but it, we've talked about it enough on the podcast already, gets unpacked especially on, on the bondage of the will, which becomes a fault line for Lutheranism after his death. You have those who take on the bondage of the will seriously and those who are very uncomfortable with it, and that kind of becomes... Um, the uh, point of the shibboleth for genuine Lutheranism or, or um, what will be Philippism or whatever you want to call it later um, will be debates that then begin about original sin and free will and then proceed with major and others into the nature of good works. But I would say those would be what stands out to me as I read the theses as very important things um, is the original sin is um, it's not essential corruption. Right, the essence of man is still the essence of man, but it is thorough corruption of mankind. Yeah, he makes a point. This is not Manichaean. Like the right. the the will is by by nature evil. It's fallen. Yeah, and that's where my boy Flacius gets into a little bit of trouble later on. Um, but that because of this, this is what means then that our will is corrupted, and we can't will our way to salvation. Um, grace must step in, and it's. Grace in grace alone uh, that brings us to faith, that begins to align our will in some meaningful way with God's own. Um, but then also it's that grace which uh, will be then living and active through faith which brings forth works. And so it really is a complete reorientation of the theology of his day. Um, and I think this is important because in many ways the Heidelberg Disputation, the key themes are original sin free will, uh, and then grace, um, and, uh, and the freedom of a Christian, his sermon on good works, all of these early writings, you know, through like 15, 20 or so, these are going to be key themes uh, that will, will play into that. And then the relationship of um, will and law. Um, and he'll say the law is good, so our will can't be good. Why is, why is the why does the law being good prove our will can't be good? Well, because as a fallen sinner, what does my will think of, of God's law, Mike? Mm-hmm. It hates it. <laughs> right. It, um, and so this is what Paul means when he says in Romans that the law increases sin or trespasses come through the command, is that I actually rebel—the law makes me even more aware of my sin so that my sin multiplies my awareness of it, <clears throat> but I act actively then also according to my will, which— Medieval theology had a very high view of our will, not a completely pagan view of our will, don't get me wrong, but um, a very high view of my will that did not appreciate the extent to which my will actually wants to rebel against the law, shake its fist at it. 
Um, and so really, although it was a law-driven religion, medieval Catholicism had a very low view of the law because it had an incomplete understanding of original sin and um, and our lack of a free will or our bound will. And I'll let you go anywhere you want to go with some of that. Sure, money. I think there's—I keep going back. I'm glad you, you connected uh, um, uh, Paul and Rome to the Romans, his letter to the Romans, and then Moses, too. The more and more I think about Scripture as a whole— there seems to be just two paths. One, you know, to put it in Pauline terms, there is the system of righteousness by law, and the other one is a system that's a righteousness by faith. And of course, we see that already in the Old Testament. You know, when you think about like Hagar and Sarah, what's what's the difference between Hagar and Sarah? Why does, why does Paul pull out that allegory? Well, Isaac was a son of a promise, and Ishmael was the son of a human devised plan, right? Um, we're gonna, he, he's we're, the free will kid. Right. I mean, we're, we're going to choose to do this rather than be passive. And precisely when God's making it so obvious that it can't be you and you have to be passive, I don't know, like a lady, really, really great grandmother old still has to have a child. Um, you have to go by faith. And so when you, you th- there is that theme then in all of Luther's writings as well, that the will... The bound will is always going to hate God's plan and is always going to try to be God. Finally, that's it. So the bound will hates that God is God, wants to be God itself, wants to do the planning, wants to do the choosing, wants to be righteous um, by its own accord. Um, and the then on the opposite side... Um, the saint, if we're talking symbol here, sinner, uh, simultaneously sinner and saint, that is one is completely transformed that cannot help but love what God wants. So in the end, uh, you know, the last few uh, theses, uh, you know, we can go back probably pretty far, but to love God is at the same time to hate oneself, <laughs> you know? I mean, to hate my sinful nature who hates God, right? And so I don't get to like God and like myself, my sinful nature. I just can't do that. Um, and, and this doesn't mean have low self-esteem. self-esteem. No. This means um, to recognize that uh, I am by nature at odds with God. Yeah. And so to hate myself is to deny myself and take up your cross, as Paul says, or as Jesus says in Mark 8, um, is to recognize when it comes to your standing with God, um, you are the problem in that standing. Yeah, and then finally, you know, the, the saint is, it's not even a struggle. It's not like, well, I have to conform myself to God's will. I'm already, I already love what God wants. I, I naturally already am in line with God's will. Why? Because he made me that way. Uh, maybe just kind of a sub-point that was kind of floating out there, too, about, um, you know, do we have low or high anthropology? You know, do we have a very low view of mankind and his will and his desire? And Lutherans would say, and, and Calvinists, too. Oh, my goodness, yes. If you can't see that by looking out in the world, look in your own heart and look into, look into Scripture. Um, you know, every inclination of mankind is always evil all the time, you know. Um, and yet we have very high anthropology in the, in the respect for human rights being created in the image of God, a lost image, you know, but the shell's still there, however you want to explain it. But even deeper than that, you think about how... God respects us. I mean, I think he really does respect us. 
But the, the Tower of Babel account shows that he really respects our capacity for evil. If we're creating the image of God with all the beauty and rationality, complexity, and may I say power that comes with that, um, when, when, when humans are fallen and have a bound choice, watch out. I mean, he respects that, that the potential for evil that we have. Um, and so you can respect and have a high anthropology for the will of man, but you have to understand that when it's sinful, <laughs> it can do some really horrendous things. And then on the flip side is there, there are good things that the church has done, that humanity has done, that the saints have done. They're amazing. They're great. We should thank God for these, and, and, and the, these are fantastic. But always with that, just it, it's like electricity, right? I mean, it can do great things, but in the wrong hands, in the wrong situation, watch out. Um, it can do a lot of damage. Yeah, and I think it's a helpful reminder, too, that what Luther's going after in scholastic theology here is not that its proponents were irreligious. It was they were religious with the wrong religion um, and that their religion was too human. There's a reason that Aristotle could resonate with them, um, and that's in that they were according some capacity to mankind to affect some amount of change in its standing with God Um, based on hard work and effort. Um, And this is why he can say things like, uh, in Thesis 41, virtually the entire ethics of Aristotle is the worst enemy of grace. Well, why is that? (coughs) Because when I conflate virtue ethics with my sanctification, my standing with God, my holiness, I bring in notions that I'm going to improve that um, by working hard at it with some capacity I have. Um, my sanctification cannot be improved insofar as it, it is the gift of God, sanctification in the broad sense. And then even my sanctification in the narrow sense, um, my Christian life, um, that can in some ways I can improve in things. <coughs> but even that will be affected by God's grace and his declaration of righteousness. It cannot be achieved apart from that. Um and so that's where the form of Concord will t- talk about sanctification in the narrow sense, not being like two oxen pulling a cart where they each pull equally, um, but God is doing most of the work. I think you got it, something important there with us wanting to be God. In many ways, um, Genesis 1 through 3, Romans 1 through 3, um, Galatians 1 through 4, <clears throat> really Galatians 1 through 3, probably 2, um, are getting at all the same thing is that you can't get to where you're going to understand how your relationship with God works and how grace works until you get original sin and the bondage of the will right. And so this is always, and this is not to pick on the Creation Museum, and I've told this story before, and um, the Creation Museum, I think, in some ways can be helpful, and, you know, that's great if you want to go. But the thing I kind of got a kick out of when I went is here's this whole museum um, based upon holding up the integrity of Genesis, and the very last thing on our tour was we were asked to make a decision for Christ. And so, you know, here's this thing that's meant to really uphold um, the clear teachings of Genesis, and then what did it get wrong at the end? But the our Whole loss of, of free will, <laughs> um, you know, the bound will, and and uh, really the depth of, <coughs> of original sin. Excuse the coughing. Um, and so Luther is driving home. We, the gospel will only be appreciated for what it is 
and God's grace will only be appreciated for what they are when we get original sin and the bound will right. And we will only get the bound will and original sin right when we actually let the law be the law, which is good, right? To mm-hmm. let the law be good. Um, because otherwise what we end up on, and a, a theme that we've had throughout this podcast, is how human religion or work righteousness creates a selfish sanctification. In other words, I need to use my neighbor to become more sanctified, which is really not serving my neighbor at all. It's serving myself through my neighbor. And so he'll get to, in um, Theses 78 and 79, um, uh, 78, the will which is inclined toward the law without the grace of God is in, is so inclined by reason of its own advantage, what can I get out of it? And 79, condemned um, are all those who do the works of the law. Well, what's he getting at there? Um is that when my, self, my sanctification becomes selfishness, it's something that I think I have to do for myself and my neighbor's there to help me achieve it. Um, I've lost sight of it as gift and that the grace of God is actually what is at work in and through me. Um, and so uh, in many ways, I mentioned Melanchthon earlier. Melanchthon will come, I believe, August of 1518. His first address must have been somewhat early on in that. But... Part of what will be a draw to Melanchthon to Wittenberg, um, beyond just it's a job, which is always a draw, um, will be that this these discussions are already happening at, happening at Wittenberg about what this theology means for the curriculum and how they do what they do as a university. Um, and so Melanchthon will pick up on these themes, and his Christian humanism will fit very well with some of these as well. So Melanchthon's going to write, um, well, he's going to teach from, and then his students kind of secretly have published his 1521 Lotzi. Um, but how is he going to do that? It's, it's largely going to be a commentary on Romans. Um, and so we see this um, disputation against scholastic theology kind of becomes, we see in it already the themes that Melanchthon and others will pick up as well um, for how we ought to approach God in the scriptures. Um, and, you know, one of the early lines in the 1521 Lotzi is uh, um, very similar to one that Luther has here is that free will is a myth, is a chimera. Um, it doesn't really exist. That's something also that comes out, um, not Thesis 16, I don't think, but one of them in the Heidelberg Disputation. Um, there's a very Pauline thrust to, uh, to how Luther is going to proceed in these. And so it's not... Mere, it's not merely academic. It's not merely how should we do theology, um, but it's also very pastoral. It's how does how does the whole interacting with God thing work at its most foundational level? Yeah, I, maybe just step back a little bit into what you were, you were saying about um, you know, something that looks outwardly good, right? Like this, this is Aristotelian way of thinking about ethics, or I'm doing, I'm this good Christian stuff. You can again see hints of what's going to come in in Heidelberg, where what looks good is actually not going to be good. In fact, it's very evil because if it is your good works are done for your own benefit, then you are in that other system, the system of law, righteousness by law, rather than the system by faith. So it's literally evil for you. It works against you. But it's also evil for your neighbor because maybe maybe they don't get it, 
right away that um, that you are using them for your own self-satisfaction, your own sanctification, your own relationship with God. Um, but you are misusing them. And, um, and so it's not actually good. It is evil. And besides that, God says it's evil, right? And so there's an epistemological thing there that God, by his revelation, says this. And, and just to add that pastoral thing, too, why are you putting yourself into this situation where you have to, you have to live your life in order to make somebody happy, whether it be you, whether it be your neighbor, whether it be God, you're putting yourself into that system of law and not living by gift, as we've talked about uh, over and over again on this podcast. So as a little bit to conclude, I'll kick it to you for the end, but just if I would take a couple (coughs) takeaways from this whole, what's the scholastic thing or whatever, and what does this mean without getting too much into into the weeds, is I would say this. Uh, rationality is obviously good. Reason is good. Um, the problem is, is when we take something that God reveals, thus saith the Lord, and we try to shoehorn it into our way of thinking, whether it be Aristotelian uh, logic, whether it be his ethics, whether it be my own, whatever it's going to be. And we do this all the time, right? I mean, how many times have you heard a preacher or a Christian program or just a Christian individual say, Here's my, here's my goal here. It's leadership, or it is going to be a good business practices or whatever. And you find some Bible passages that fit what you already wanted to say, and you end up losing the context of those passages, and almost inevitably, you're going to lose two doctrines, original sin and uh, bound choice. And when you lose those two doctrines, you eventually are going to lose the doctrine of grace. And so to say, not to just fall everything that's a reason is bad, that's just not true, but rather to say revelation trumps reason. I take reason up to revelation. And then, and then the second thing is to be reminded of, I don't have the ability to know God, no matter how good my logic is completely, he has to reveal things to me. Um, and what a gift it is that it is revealed. So your final takeaways, Wade, from this disputation. Yeah, I guess just one more thesis that I'll briefly comment on, but 39, he says, we are not masters of our actions from beginning to end, but servants. And I think this brings out, you know, Paul is star- or Luther starting to pick up on a theme from Paul, is that we're all slaves. The question is to whom we're a slave, and this is something that will come out and on the bondage of the will, that we're a beast of burden ridden by either God or the devil, um, is that our actions are not what make us who we are, but rather our actions are expressions of who we are. So we are slaves of self or we are slaves of Christ. Um, and slavery to Christ is, of course, freedom, where now we are freed from ourselves for Christ to work through us. Um, but the, the great tension point of this is to get to the point that you understand true freedom and what it is to be slave, a slave to Christ is to understand, to acknowledge your complete inability by nature, by first birth, um, to dictate your standing with God or even your nature on your own. Um, it is something that you are born with, and then grace and salvation and even our good works um, become entirely gift. And so while we had the 95 Theses last time and we said there's not a lot of real Lutheran themes there, I think it's important for us to see 
just how much Luther's study of the scriptures is shaping him at this point, that these key themes are already prevalent in these theses, um, and that they will be the themes, the emphases that will be disputed after his death, and I would argue really are what divide Christianity into various camps still today. How seriously do we take that we are born dead in sin, that our will is bound? How seriously do we take that the law is good and holy, but we are not? How seriously do we take that um, our standing as a child of God and our salvation is something bestowed upon us and, and, some, and not something which we work towards or receive as wage and not as gift? And so I, I'd encourage people, it is not a long writing at all, this uh, Disputation Against Scholastic and Theology. I would encourage people to give it a read. Um, and as we make our way on, I, we'll be getting to Heidelberg soon. But hopefully we have a string of uh, sessions here where you start to get a little bit sick of hearing about free will and original sin and grace and truly good works and law and gospel um, because these things are going to just be popping up again and again in Luther, and it's this which drives the Reformation. It's not simply we shouldn't be selling indulgences in Saxony. These are the things which gets him to the point that he feels the need to write the 95 Theses and to speak about other abuses, um, both with indulgences, the papacy, church councils. Um, this is really the driving force. And I would say um, that ironically, it's, um, it's in, still today, in good Lutheran theology, it's in the recognition of our slavery according to our first birth that we are then able to appreciate and to live in the freedom that is given us in our second birth and baptism. Uh, and I'll stop there, and I'll let you bring it to a close. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, next time, I don't know if we'll go to the Heidelberg next time or not or where we're going to go, but um, come join us back as we take the next step in the life and thought of Martin Luther. Until then, friends, let the bird fly. I'm not drunk, I'm just drinking. I 